this is the second week of our sermon series, Closer, which is all about worship. It's all about uh, what it means to worship God. But I want to be clear, as we, as we said last week, there may be a lot of things that pop into your mind when you hear the word worship. Probably, if you're like me, you think about like singing songs at church on a Sunday morning. That's worship. And it is. That's worship. But, but this series is about worship as a bigger thing. This is bigger than just singing some songs on Sunday. Uh, we're talking about what it means to commune with God to commune with God, to have a relationship, a back and forth with our creator. Yes, on Sunday mornings, but also throughout the week. How to live a lifestyle of worship. And my hope is that as we talk about these different concepts about worship and these different ideas, that it would help to deepen your experience of worship. Yes, in this room. Yes, on Sunday mornings, but also throughout the week as you worship God in different ways. So here's kind of a a big picture of some of the things that we're talking about. We're kind of looking at it from a bunch of different angles. Uh, Last week, my dad shared about about the, the idea that God listens to us when we worship. Like he pulls up a big chair and listens as we enter into that thin space of worship. Well, so God listens to us. Later in the series, we'll talk about how we listen to God how our listening to God is actually a part of our worship. This week, today, I'm going to be talking about how we, in our worship, we are bringing gifts to God. We're bringing gifts to God in our worship, and later in the series, we'll talk about how also in worship we bring our burdens to God. And then next week, Maren's going to talk, is it next week, Maren? Is that right? Yeah, next week, Maren's going to talk about how worship is not just a, a mental exercise, but it's actually something that involves our bodies. We get our bodies involved in worship. So, that's kind of just an overview of what we're, what we're doing here. But again, worship is an integral part of our faith. We want this community, this, this congregation, to grow deeper in our communion with God, and I think it's going to be good. All right, so like I said, today we're talking about bringing gifts, bringing sacrifices to God in our worship. And so to do that, I want to look at Psalm 66. So grab a Bible with me, turn to Psalm 66. It's going to be page 481 in the House Bibles. And I'm pumped because I love the Psalms. They are, it's, it's rich poetry, uh, Hebrew meditation literature. There is so much cool stuff to dig into. Um, but here's the thing, with Psalms, with Hebrew poetry, it is really great if you have it open in front of you because there are images and ideas and words and it is very, very good for you to be able to see the text as we go along. So whether it's digitally or physically, I'd love it if you had a Bible open in front of you because this is a really, really deep and uh, beautiful Psalm with a lot of ideas to, to look at. So before we read it, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, then we'll start reading Psalm 66. Father God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for pulling up a big chair to listen. You didn't have to. You're, you're the creator of all. You're holy. You're beyond everything that we could comprehend. You have no reason to, to step in and care for us, and yet you do, and we are grateful. I pray, Father, that as we explore what it means to worship you, to, to lift you up, to, to commune with you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us what we can be doing to deepen our relationship with you. As I preach, would you, would you just help me to disappear and let Let your Holy Spirit remain. I ask that we would have ears to hear what you have to say for us today. I pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So Psalm 66, we're going to kind of take it pretty much one stanza at a time and talk about it as we go. This is a psalm that is all about 
worship. Surprise, surprise. It is what is often referred to as a psalm of praise, okay? Psalm of praise. So let me just read the first little bit and we'll talk about it. Verse one. Shout joyful praises to God, all the earth. Sing about the glory of his name. Tell the world how glorious he is. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Your enemies cringe before your mighty power. Everything on earth will worship you. They will sing your praises, shouting your name in glorious songs. Okay, we'll pause there. Like I said, this psalm is all about worship. The author of this psalm, who just because this is what they're often called, the author of a psalm is usually called a psalmist. So I'm just going to call him the psalmist because that, in case you're wondering what I'm talking about, that's what that word means. The psalmist, the author of this psalm, he's inviting his readers, the people who are hearing or singing this song, and that includes us, to join him in worshiping God. A bit later in the psalm, he talks about bringing gifts and sacrifices to God as a part of worship, and we'll get into that, but it's important right now to look at why. Why would we bring gifts to God in our worship in the first place? And so there's a structure to this psalm, and as with good poetry, it's important to pay attention to these kinds of things, the world of the text. There's a structure to this psalm where at the end of the psalm, it ends very individual and personal. The psalmist is saying, uh, this is what I'm going to do, or this is what you've done for me, etc. But here at the beginning of the psalm, as we just read, it is very universal. It's very uh, broad and wide. Look at verse 4. Everything, everything on earth will worship you. And in fact, if you zoom out even farther, you look at the the structure of this psalm, but you zoom out farther, you realize that there's like a superstructure because where this psalm falls in the midst of other psalms is not an accident. And Psalm 65, the one right before this, is about God as the, the master of all creation. He's the one who sends the rain on the crops. He's the one who feeds the sheep and, and everything in Psalm 65, from the, the wheat to the sheep to people, everything in creation worships God. And so Psalm 66 picks right up where Psalm 65 leaves off. It's everything. It's universal praise of God. But now, as we look at the next verse, we see that the psalmist begins to zoom in. He begins to kind of move in and focus in a little bit more. Here's what verse 5 says. Come and see what our God has done, what awesome miracles he performs for people. He made a dry path through the Red Sea, and his people went across on foot, There we rejoiced in him, for by his great power he rules forever. He watches every movement of the nations. Let no rebel rise in defiance. Okay, so again, the psalmist is zooming in, and and here what he's talking about is uh, worshiping God, yes, for all that he does for creation, but now for what he's done for the people of Israel, specifically. Verse six, uh, he says, he made a dry path through the sea, or as the NLT translates it, the Red Sea. But this is a reference to what happens in the book of Exodus. The Israelites, if you're unfamiliar with the story, they were in slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh, this, this rebel uh, who, who rebelled against the intentions of God, had been enslaving Israel, and God rescued them. He delivered them by taking them through the Red Sea on dry land, rescued them from slavery. He delivered them. So that's a really good reason to praise God, right? Think about what he's done for us. So again, you, you see we're zooming in. We've moved from all of creation, from everything on earth, to the Israelites. The Israelites have a good reason to worship God. And so you'd think that next step would be that we would zoom in even further, right? That we would be like, all right, all right, everything, the Israelites, 
What about me or maybe just my community? But no, that's not exactly what the psalmist does. He kind of hangs out talking about Israel for just a little bit longer, and it's kind of a bit of a twist. So let me just, let me just read this, because it's, it's kind of, well, it's a little surprising. Verse 8, he says, Let the whole world bless our God and loudly sing his praises. Our lives are in his hands, and he keeps our feet from stumbling. You have tested us, O God. You've purified us like silver. You've captured us in your net, and you've laid the burden of slavery on our backs. Then you put a leader over us. We went through fire and flood, but you brought us to a place of great abundance. Hmm. So here, the, the psalmist is still praising God. He's still worshiping, but think about what he's praising God for. He says, you tested us. You captured us in your net. You put burdens on our back. You put a leader over us, which literally in Hebrew is, is you let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and flood. What's going on here? I mean, why is the psalmist worshiping God for all of this terrible hardship? I mean, yeah, he ends with saying you led us to a place of abundance, but he's saying, God, you did these terrible things to us. I mean, you saved us from Pharaoh. That's great. That's awesome. But you tested us. You, you made us suffer. Why would he praise God for that? Well, to understand that, again, it's important to understand the context of the story that he's referring to here. Because when you look back at the narrative of the Old Testament, especially the book of Exodus, you realize that, that the Exodus from Egypt, you know, God's deliverance out of slavery for the people, that's only kind of the beginning of the story. That's only the first part, because the second part is where the Israelites are now in the wilderness. They're in the wilderness where they are, as the Bible continuously says, tested by God. In the wilderness, they face hunger, they face thirst, they, they, they face enemy tribes attacking them. I mean, it's a, it's a rough experience. But through it all, again, we see this, this over and over uh, in the text that God tests the people. He tests them. And those tests almost always take the form of God asking the Israelites to trust him in some way. For example, it's something like, uh, I'm going to give you water, okay? I'm going to give you water in the desert, but you have to trust me, and, and you'll get water the way that I'm going to give it to you, all right? Or, or he'll say, uh, I'm going to provide bread for you every morning, manna from heaven, but you can't take more bread than you need for today. You've got to trust that I'm going to give you more bread for tomorrow. I'm going to give you victory over your enemies, but you have to trust in my power to do it, not your own power. Right? These are tests again and again. God tests his people in the wilderness. And unfortunately, if you read this story, nine times out of ten, the Israelites fail these tests. And yet God keeps, keeps testing them. They fail to trust him, but, they, but he continues to test them. So what is this? Like, is God being cruel? Is he being cruel? Why would anyone worship God for putting the Israelites through all this hardship? Why would you put that in a psalm of praise? I think the answer is right here in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, You have tested us, O God. You have purified us like silver. In the ancient world, refining precious metals like gold, like silver, 
is a, was a very, very labor-intensive process. And I'll be honest, it was not a, a very nice process for the silver or the gold. So, you know, you, maybe you have, I'll speak for myself, I have in my, my mind a, a mental image of like a, a miner in the mines just chipping away with a pickaxe and suddenly coming across a big old lump of pure gold or pure silver, right? That's not how it works, right? This isn't Minecraft. That's not, that's not how, it, how it actually works. Uh, what silver looks like when you first find it in a mine is something like this. Uh, and this is like a particularly rich silver deposit. It, it's, it's ore. It's a, it's a rock, right? That's what silver looks like. And if in the ancient world, if you wanted to turn that into jewelry, it had to go through a lot. You had to crush it and grind it. You had to wash it and pan it. You had to put it through a bunch of fire. I mean, we're talking, uh, we're talking smelting and annealing and this process that I learned about this week called cupellation, where they like take bone ash and put lead in it. It doesn't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm gonna get into metallurgy live as a new uh, hobby someday, sorry. I just, I'm, I pick up hobbies like, uh, like all the time. Anyway, maybe someday, metallurgy, yeah? You okay? No, not so much. Getting the, getting the head shaken, so whatever. It's fine. It's fine. The, the point is, to get something out of a hunk of rock into a piece of silver, you got to go through a lot of work. And again, it's not so pleasant if you're the hunk of rock. But that's what the psalmist is saying has happened to Israel. That's what, what God was doing to Israel in the wilderness. He was testing them, not to punish them, not to punish them, not to, not to add unnecessary hardships to them, but to make them pure, to bring out their, their true value. See, these hardships that the people were facing day after day, these were not arbitrary hardships. These were tests that shaped the people. They shaped the people into the masterpiece that God had designed them to be. These tests were shaping them into being the kinds of people who trusted God. That's just how they operated. They trusted God. They're the kinds of people. He wanted them to be the kinds of people who lived fully into God's abundance instead of constantly trying to scramble around, trying to make their own abundance. These are the kinds of tests that that would shape the people to be a people who, who pursued God's intentions for the world. Justice and peace and mercy healing this broken world. That's what God was shaping them to be. The Israelites started out as a hunk of rock, but God was shaping them into precious metal. You have tested us, O God. You have purified us like silver. And that, that, that is something worth praising God for. So, We worship God for being the master of all creation. Everything worships him. We zoom in. We worship God for what he did to deliver the Israelites. But we also worship God, the psalmist says, for the way that he refined and and shaped and purified the people through testing, like silver. And now we've zoomed in, we've zoomed in. Now the author talks about himself. Here's what he says in verse, uh, verse 13. He says, now I come to your temple with burnt offerings to fulfill the vows I made to you. Yes, the sacred vows that I made when I was in deep trouble. That is why I'm sacrificing burnt offerings to you. The best of my rams as a pleasing aroma and a sacrifice of bulls and male goats. Come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he did for me. For I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke, 
If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love from me. So here, as this psalm comes to an end, the author is praising God. He's bringing gifts and he's bringing offerings to him. We'll talk about those more in just a minute. But he's doing this, he's praising, he's worshiping because of all the stuff that we just talked about, of of, of what Israel went through, the deliverance, the, the testing, all of that. The author is saying all of that is also true of him. It's true of me as an individual, the author is saying. Verse 16, I will tell you what he did for me. I was in deep trouble. I cried out to him for help, he says. Just like the Israelites in slavery, I needed deliverance, and I got it. Verse 19, God paid attention to my prayer. That's what Exodus says, that God heard the groanings and the prayers of his people, of the Israelites. God paid attention. He delivered me, but that's not all. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness, God also took me through a time of testing and purifying. He says in verse 18, look, I had sin in my heart to confess. I was falling short of God's standards, but praise God, verse 20, because he did not withdraw his unfailing love from me. No, he stayed with it. He kept at it. He kept testing me. He shaped me into a masterpiece, into the pure silver I was created to be. Through deliverance and through testing, here I stand, and my God is worthy of praise because of it. So, how does he worship God in response? How does the psalmist respond to all of what he's just reflected on? Well, he does it, as the, as the psalm says, through burnt offerings, through sacrifices. Now, this is something that we don't do anymore, uh, but back then, this was a very significant part of people's relationships with God in ancient Israel, was the sacrificial system. Um, and, and in this psalm, it's important to note that the sacrifice that this psalmist is talking about making, it is, they're, they're over-the-top sacrifices, right? Verse 15, he says he's sacrificing the best of his rams, uh, bulls, male goats. I'm not going to get into the specifics of, of the ancient Israelite sacrificial system, but I'm going to tell you this. What he is doing here is literally overkill. This is over the top. It's way too much. Okay, he, it, it was way more than was required by the law of Moses. A much smaller sacrifice would have totally sufficed if he was trying to check the box, if he was trying to, to just to do the right thing. But the psalmist, I mean, you get this, the psalmist is not interested in just going through the motions. That's not why he's doing these sacrifices, is it? He's being extravagant in his gifts to God. And when you look at the whole psalm and you see what led up to these sacrifices, you understand why. He's asking, what can I bring in worship to the God who sustains all creation? What can I bring in worship to the God who has delivered my people? What can I bring in worship to the God who has tested and purified my people? And what can I bring in worship to the God who's done all of that for me? Verse 20, praise God who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love from me. Words are not enough, in other words. I'm gonna give my very best offerings. So that's, that's Psalm 66 in a nutshell. 
And as with all the Psalms, I mean, there are so many other things we could look at, so many things we could explore and talk about, but we're in a series about worship, specifically our worship, our worship of God. And so with what we just read, I wonder, what can we take away for our worship today? What do we take away from Psalm 66 in the way that we commune with God, the way that we interact and and go back and forth with God? Well, the way I see it, there are two big lessons from Psalm 66 that I think are very applicable to us. So here's the first one. The first one is just this. True worship, true worship flows out of a reflective heart. True worship flows out of a reflective heart. And here's what I mean by that. Throughout the psalm, the author is constantly praising God. Of course, it's a psalm of praise. He's calling others to join him in worship. He's making extravagant sacrifices and all of that, right? That's, that's, but why is he doing it? He's doing it as a reflection because of, he's been reflecting on why God deserves it, right? God sustains creation, so praise him for that. God has delivered and tested his people. Well, he deserves our worship. God has delivered and tested me. Well, here are my gifts for him, right? You see how that, how that works? True worship for the psalmist flows out of his reflective heart, and it's the same for us. True worship is a response and a reflection of what God has done. Now, here's why this is important for us today, because If you're like me, if you're like me, you often get in the habit of singing worship songs or whatever just because, I don't know, it's just what you're supposed to do, right? You come to church and you sing because everyone else is singing. You don't want to be, you don't want to look weird, so you sing along. Or or you say things about God, who who God is and his holiness and his might and his power, but you say them because those are the lyrics on the screen, right? (laughs) And so you just kind of go through the motions. What would happen What would happen if we were to enter into times of worship here on Sunday mornings or any time we're communing with God in our lives? What would happen if we entered into those times of worship reflective, with a reflective heart? If we entered worship intentionally thinking about and thinking back on what God has done for us, for our world, for our community, Reflecting on what he's done to bring healing to the brokenness that we see around us. Reflecting on on what he's done for humanity through the sacrifice of Jesus. How he delivered us from sin the way that he delivered Israel from slavery. Reflecting on what he has done for you. What has God delivered you from? What has he delivered you from? Or for that matter, how has God been testing you? How are you being refined like silver? Again, it's not a pleasant process, but we see the end result. What fire and flood has God taken you through to shape you, to shape you, to purify you? Because you are his masterpiece and his love for you never fails. How has he been delivering you? How has he been testing you? If these are the kinds of questions that you're asking when you enter into a time of worship, I guarantee your heart's going to be in a different place. Your worship is going to be more genuine. It's going to be more alive because you are reflecting on what God has done. True worship flows out of a reflective heart. That's the first takeaway. And the second takeaway comes right out of that. A reflective heart is generous. A reflective heart is generous. In Psalm 66, the author brings, like I said, extravagant, overkill, extravagant sacrifices to God. 
He's, he's reflected on all that God has done for him, for his people, for the world, and he's overflowing with thanksgiving. Here, God, this is, this is what I have. Take it. This is for you. What might that look like today? I'm really grateful that we don't have the sacrificial system anymore, right? I'm really, really grateful that we don't sacrifice animals, but I do believe that we still have a lot to offer. We do. We have stuff to offer to God. And so let me give you a couple ideas of what that might look like for us. First of all, in your worship, you can offer God the gift of your praise. The gift of your praise. Saying or declaring or singing things about God that tell the world how great he is, that tell him how great he is. How many of you would say that you have the, the love language of words of affirmation? Raise your hands if you, okay, a good number of people. All right, words of affirmation, they're nice. And even if you don't have that as a, like a love language, you, you like being affirmed, right? It's nice to be affirmed. Now, you might think that words of affirmation is a great gift because sometimes you're insecure and you need a little pat on the back. But if you're talking to a psychologist, they will tell you that's not why words of affirmation are important. They're important because when you are, are being affirmed by another person, what's happening is you are learning who you are in that person's heart, right? They are, they are making real, making known how they feel about you inside, and that bonds you together as, as, a, as people, as, as friends, right? That's why words of affirmation are so important because you're getting a little glimpse inside their heart. The same thing is true when we affirm or praise or magnify God. When we say things, he's not insecure. He doesn't need to know like, oh good, you're doing a great job. God. No, he's God. He, he's, he's fine. No, what, what's happening when we are affirming God in our praise, in our worship, is that we are revealing what our heart says about who he is. And just like person to person, person to God, we are, we are allowing that relationship to deepen by bringing those things into the light. So you can give God a gift of praise. You can say things about him that reveal who he is inside. It will deepen your relationship. Your words of praise can be a gift to your father. That's one idea. Second, you can give God the gift of your resources. The gift of your resources. You can give him your time, right? Time is money. You can give him that. You can give him your energy. You can also give him your money. You can give God your resources, the things that are valuable to you. Again, the psalmist here, he's making extravagant sacrifices, over the top, overkill. They're, they're way too much. Rams and bulls and goats, like that's, that's more than you need to do but he's doing it because it's an overflow of what he's reflected on, of his gratitude. So part of worshiping God for you, it might involve, it, no, not might, it does involve sacrificing some of the things that you hold dear, the things that are valuable to you. Again, not because he needs it, right? You're not helping him out here. This isn't a favor to God. He doesn't, he's God, he doesn't need it. What this does is it reflects who he is in your heart. Are you willing, are you willing to, to give up, to sacrifice some of your valuable time? Can you do that as a reflection of what God has done for you? Can you serve him in one way or another? Are you willing to give God some of your energy? Not just the, the leftover energy that you got when you're, you know, you're done with a really long week, but, but the best of your energy, the best hours of your day. What would it look like to sacrifice those to him? Are you willing to give God even some of your hard-earned cash? 
your money, right? Investing in his purposes in the world, not out of obligation, not because it's the right thing to do, but because you're grateful. What would it look like to give God a gift that, that, that is a sacrifice, a gift that matters? Your resources can be that gift. Time, energy, money. You can be giving him a gift of gratitude with any one of those things. Finally, you can give God the gift of your attention. The gift of your attention. Now that, that one, after talking about all this other stuff, that might seem like the least substantial of all of these. Like how do we call that a gift? But I think it might actually be one of the most important. It might be one of the most important. Look, when you're trying to worship God at home, uh, maybe in your times of prayer, you're listening to some music in the car, you're here on a Sunday morning and you're, you're trying to, what happens? And I'll speak for myself. I know what happens. I get distracted. My mind is, is all over the map. I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm thinking. I'm like worried about what am I going to have for lunch? I'm thinking about uh, what about that thing that person said to me the other day? And like, oh man, this, this thing at work is really hard, right? This is, this is what happens in our minds. When we do that, we are not present in the worship. We're not present with God. And it's just as, as uh, distracting as it would be if we were trying to have a conversation with another person while thinking about all these things. We are, we are distracted. And so it can be a mighty gift to give God our undivided attention, our focus. You can give God the gift of your, of your focus, of your attention. And this will deepen your relationship to him. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a gift. True worship flows out of a reflective heart, and a reflective heart is generous. Whether you reflect on it or not, whether you realize it or not, God has delivered you. And whether you see this as a positive thing or not, God is testing and refining and shaping you because you're his masterpiece. What you choose to give to God as a result of these things, in response to these things, that's a choice that you have to make. What gift, what gift are you bringing in worship to the God who set you free? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I'll be the first to admit that I often let my, my mind wander, my attention wander. I, I, don't, I, I don't reflect often enough on all that you've accomplished for me, all that you are accomplishing in me and through me. Father, I feel that's probably echoed many, many times among the people of grace. We just, uh, we just need some work in our hearts to, to, to show you how we truly feel. And so God, I ask that as you, as you shape us into be the kinds of people who worship with our lives, I pray that you would give us ideas and, and, and uh, insights and uh, ways to use the things that we have to give you a gift that even begins to say thank you for what you've done. Would you shape us to be reflective people in our worship? And Father, would you, as, as we've said, you pull up the big chair and listen. As you are enthroned on our praises, I ask, Father, that you would be pleased with the gifts, however meager they may seem to us, the gifts that we bring to you as you shape us into being the kinds of people who reflect your love to our world. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us hub. 
There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.